Are you like me and tracking the polls obsessively this election year? Well, Dan Pfeiffer's right there with you, and he's taking them seriously, but not literally. Take an average of the polls. Don't forget about any one poll. And the thing that we try to tell everyone in every episode of this podcast is a poll that has Biden up to and a poll that has Biden down to, they all tell you the exact same thing, which is this is a very, very close race. The goal of this podcast is to help people understand polling and freak out about it just a little bit less. Explore the latest polls, what they actually mean, and whether or not it's time to hit the panic button. Tune into Polar Coaster with Dan Pfeiffer, Cricket's latest subscriber-exclusive show. To get access, subscribe to our Friends of the Pod community only at cricket.com slash friends. Welcome to Love It or Leave It Out of the Closets Into the Streets. amazing song i really loved it. it was by andrew Dwiggins. andrew thank you so much if you have an out of the closets into the streets theme song for love it or leave it email it to us at leave it at crooked.com leave it at crooked.com before we get to the show if you haven't already please check out edith our new scripted comedy starring rosamund pike edith explores the untold story of america's secret first female president edith wilson the first lady to woodrow wilson In this new episode, a decades-old sex scandal emerges to the surface, and Edith is left with no choice but to meet her husband's former lover face-to-face. We're so proud of Edith. Obviously, Travis, who was the head writer on this show, uh, created with Gonzalo Cordova. The cast is incredible. The writing is incredible. It's actually rising up the podcast charts because so many people are talking about how much they love it and getting their friends to listen. So check out Edith. New episodes of Edith are released every Thursday, and the first three are out now. Follow on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Also, on this week's episode of Keep It, actor, dancer, and choreographer Nico Anon stops by. Nico has been on all of our favorite shows from P-Valley to Shameless, so you won't want to miss this one. New episodes of Keep It drop every Wednesday. Listen for free wherever you get your podcasts. On the show this week, reporter and meteorologist Eric Holdhouse agrees that it's really fucking hot out. And we celebrate America's birthday by celebrating its presidents. But first, he is a writer, comedian, and editor of the reincarnated Gawker, back from the dead like an arm (laughs) from underneath the ground, reaching up to grab the ankle of, like, P. 
Peter Thiel, I guess. I don't know, whoever. Please welcome George Severus. George, thanks for being here. Hello. Hi. <laughs> what an intro. <laughs> Sorry. I just, I... No, it's, I mean, I sent a series of unhinged emails to your producers because at first I thought I wasn't allowed to talk about Gawker, and then my bosses were like, no, we want as much press as possible. Talk about it. <laughs> so then I, I said so that I sent a follow-up email, and I was like, ignore the email where I ask um, John not to ask me about Gawker. Um, wait, so Gawker's coming back? Yeah, it's happening, and I'm going, <laughs> and I'm taking a break from being a gay stand-up comedian and podcaster to edit a blog. Um, that's interesting. That's interesting. It is, yeah, truly. I do think um, <laughs> there were many valid criticisms of Gawker, but uh, what a missing voice. Sure. And more so in recent years. It's been absent. I can't decide if, and I agree. I mean, I, I was a huge fan of the old Gawker, and I'm very excited to be part of this. There is a part of me that's like, is it a missing voice, or is it that now everyone talks like Gawker, and literally every single person on the internet actually tweets as though they are writing for Gawker? Like, was the old Gawker so influential that now it's, like, an awkward time to bring it back? I, I, I hope not. So I think two things have happened. I think, on the one hand, yeah, like, Gawker voice became internet voice. Right. But it's an imitation. I think Gawker at its worst was just that voice and just some of that meanness directed not always at the best places or the best people. At its best, it was that voice applied with like real intelligence and incisiveness as criticism right. of hypocrisy, of powerful interests. And I think that aspect of it is kind of missing. It's like, yeah. it's the style without the substance of it, if that makes sense. Totally, totally. I, I agree. And it's also like, I mean, one thing that our new editor-in-chief, Leah Finnegan, says a lot, which is even simpler than that, is just that very few publications are funny anymore. Like, the overarching, like, tone of even, you know, fun blogs and fun culture websites is not really humor. It's, like, either self-righteous posturing or, on the other side of things, like, really serious stuff or, like, trying to pass kind of, like, very... Uh, simple observations as like incredibly incisive critique that has I mean as a comedian that has like helped me be like okay the goal is to be funny and then like obviously as with comedy you know it's always better to punch up than punch down and so if we can try to do that in the Gawker voice I'll be happy yeah and I do think um there was that great essay by Tom Skoka. Tom Skoka on Smarm. On Smarm that I think was on Gawker, right? Yes. Yeah. I mean, that's like truly one of my favorite essays of all time. Yeah. The essay, which everybody should read, is basically saying that there was all this criticism of kind of snarky internet tone, but snark is the weapon we employ against Smarm. Smarm and you know yeah. what? Smarm has been on a fucking tear. Agreed. Uh, Smarm right now is winning. It is winning everywhere. It is winning on the left. And so there is a need for a rear guard action by snark to come back from behind yeah it's almost like we've gone full circle and like the people that are were the snarky people there's now smarmy snark it's like predictable and like stupid snark that isn't correct like it's not what tom skoko was talking about yeah, yeah and so i don't even know what the solution is to that it's funny like i'm actually now looking at my bookshelf and like this other book called On Bullshit by, I don't mm -hmm. know if it's Henry or Harry Frankfurt. I can't see because I'm not wearing my glasses, but it's like a book about by a philosopher. I remember that book. It was a huge moment for me reading that because essentially, and I'm butchering this, but it describes bullshit as like the point of like an utterance is not even trying to convince someone of something. Like it's not about the substance of what you're saying. It's about a general kind of affect. 
that is what all political and cultural communication is right now. In on bullshit, it's that in many ways bullshit is worse than a lie because at least the lie respects the idea of truth. Right. That the lie recognizes it's trying to get one over on you. Yeah. Uh, in a way that bullshit isn't. And there was a reporter who I think made this observation who I, whose name is escaping me right now. I can't remember who made it. Put it in the comments. There are no comments. <laughs> that there was this like category error in 2016, which is Hillary Clinton was sorted as a liar and Donald Trump was sorted as a bullshitter. But actually, Donald Trump was a world historic liar and Hillary Clinton was doing kind of quotidian political bullshit right, at times, right. at times, no more so or less so than any other successful politician would. Yeah, well, that's also like this lack of perspective almost where like, yes, bullshit is everywhere, but that can't be the end of your argument because, the, yes, everything is bullshit to some extent. I mean, I am partly bullshitting you right now because I'm pretending to know more than I do. You know, like it's like yeah, everything. Yeah, that's what I do for a, a living. Yeah, yeah and, and same. <laughs> everything is that. So I don't know. You have to pick your battles. But but yes, I mean, when you have someone like Trump who truly just like destroys all rules of discourse, then yes, it doesn't matter whether you're pointing out that something is bullshit or not. Well, anyway, <laughs> I'm interested. Great. I'm interested in this. I'm interested in this new one and the return of Gonker. Let's get into it. What a week. In a 6-3 decision on Thursday, the Supreme Court upheld Arizona's restrictive voting rules, which lower courts had found to be biased against minority voters. Critics of the ruling fear that this will disproportionately suppress minority votes. Meanwhile, fans of the ruling are hopeful that this will disproportionately suppress minority votes. Right. That seems like a pretty self-explanatory one. <laughs> I like that joke because Norm MacDonald talks about the platonic ideal being a joke where the setup and punchline are the same. Yes. And the more similar you can get them, the better it is. Now, that's that's a good example of that. I'm very happy with that. Alan Weiselberg, the chief financial officer of the Trump organization, surrendered... Wow, that... Did you hear my Long Island in there? No. It came back. I've been in New York. I've been in New York for four days, and I said, officer... Alan Weisselberg, the chief financial officer of the Trump organization, surrendered to authorities on Thursday after he was indicted by a grand jury for a 15-year scheme to avoid paying taxes. It's a good thing for Trump that tax fraud and evasion are so infrequently associated with more serious crimes. I think that, like, the worst kind of resistance tweets are the ones you tweet in your own heart. Yes. And... There was this moment where I was like thinking about this. I was just just thinking about it. No evidence, pure speculation. Like, all right, if I was planning to indict Donald Trump for a host of crimes, what would I do? Would I telegraph that that is something that might be coming? No, you would not want to do that. You would not want to have the chaos and noise of a Trump indictment to exist before he was indicted. You kind of just want to show up at Mar-a-Lago and knock on the door and catch them by surprise. And so I had this little part of me, this little little resistance Twitter bot in my mind being like, it could happen. It was like when they were talking about the Russia investigation, it was like the impeachment eagle has been released. The Supreme Court has issued an indictment against uh, Steve Baden. He'll be hung on the White House steps. Um, that's where my head has been going just for fun, sure. just because I'm a little bit broken. Sorry, I know this is the most cliche thing to say, but it is still so hard to keep track. So this specific news story, <laughs> who is being indicted and for what? <laughs> the Trump Organization is being indicted the corporation yes. and Alan Weisselberg, mm -hmm. who is the CFO of the organization, he's not cooperative. Got it. So it seems like they are trying to turn up the heat, as it were. Uh, you know, basically, I think we're at the place where D'Onofrio is walking in and kind of tilting to the side. Right, 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 right. And saying, 
He knew, <laughs> you know, that kind of a thing. Uh-huh. They, he, Trump's fine. His, in, his organization is in shambles. He's in Mar-a-Lago. And I just want to say, if you're still in line to vote, stay in line. Stay in line. If you are still in line from in New York City to vote in the mayoral primary, you stay in line. Yes. They don't know how many votes there are. They don't know how many votes there will be. No. I was thinking of, like, what would I, if Gawker had already launched, like, what would my headline be today? And it's truly, like... Can anyone tell me what's happening with the mayoral race? Mm-mm. Like, please submit tips. I, I it's it's completely. <laughs> I I have no idea what's going on. So the New York Board of Elections, they accidentally included a bunch of dummy ballots in their original count. That's right. Okay. So then they said, "Whoopsie doodle." Well, they released a notes app apology. They did put out a notes app apology saying that they're sorry for the election. They're sorry about what they said about Britney in the nineties. <laughs> uh, they kind of got all of that right. in there. And so then they started the count again. And then today, this is we're recording this on Thursday evening, the Board of Elections said they will, and this is a quote, maybe, end quote, share results for a host of other elections tomorrow, but they're just not sure. Because, George, you know what they say about voting in New York. If you can suppress it here, you can suppress it anywhere. You can anywhere. suppress it anywhere. That's right. Um, <laughs> never have I felt more... Um, disempowered with my voting choices. Actually, I guess that's not true. I mean, I guess I, guess I haven't loved my choices over the past few years, but just simply no excitement in the polls. I think the energy was everyone truly just like throwing their uh, ballot at the person collecting them. Nobody knows what's going to happen and nobody is sure. And anyone who is sure seems to be silly. But it does look like we went from, wow, Eric Adams dominated. What does that mean for progressivism in America. Right. To Catherine Garcia is now likely to win. And then it's like, wait, so our takes without subtlety vis-a-vis Adams were not only wrong if Adams did win, but they are overtaken by events because he didn't win. Now we have Catherine Garcia requiring new and vastly more subtle takes, right? which nobody is interested in providing. I, I mean, there's something about the Catherine Garcia thing where it's like, maybe the New York Times endorsement is a big deal. <laughs> yeah. The Andrew Yang thing truly broke my brain because I like to think of myself as a pretty savvy media consumer. And I really do think like... At this point, I have been burned enough times since like 2012 to understand that like Twitter is not real life. And Mm -hmm. somehow they got me with Yang. Like somehow I really was like, this is our biggest hurdle in a way. I haven't felt that like unaware in in a very long time. And it just like snuck up on me that in fact, the real challenge was Adams. And then there was just this like rush at the end to get everyone behind Maya Wiley. I have to say from the beginning, like I read that Rebecca Traister profile of, of Maya Wiley and I thought it was good. But even the tone of that was very much like, She's okay, you know, like she checks some boxes policy wise, but we'll see. Like I, 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 it was very difficult to get excited for her. And it's very funny that that she ended up being who people rallied around. You know, the, the Diana Morales campaign ate itself, yes. which is probably bad for that camp. I think it's always bad. Yes, no, just, definitely, just definitely the- bad. I mean, that is a whole other, which again, I thought there, I thought I was being the intelligent one for being like, Twitter is not real life. Diana Morales is not a serious, I don't want to say she's not a serious candidate, but I was like, she's never going to be mayor. Like she's too left wing, despite the fact that I may agree with her policies. And then I was proven wrong there because she started gaining momentum. And then the unionization thing happened. And I was like, oh, no, this is not a big enough story to tank her campaign. And of course it did. So I think the only thing I've learned is that I truly cannot determine when Twitter is or is not real life. Well, then I wonder, too, though, if what you end up with is a ranked choice voting system. No one candidate has built a excited coalition to kind of win overall 
Adams has this big support, but there's a lot of concerns from the left, the center and left about him for various mm -hmm. reasons. The left doesn't coalesce around really any figure until late. And if you end up with someone like Catherine Garcia winning a kind of center left experienced <laughs> sanitation commissioner who like wants to smoke cigarette and do org charts like right. that seems okay like maybe that's what ranked choice voting is all about yeah i mean listen first of all the cigarette despite my <laughs> i'm a former smoker i'm a nicorette user but despite mm -hmm. i find it very charming when a politician has flaws that um kind of uh you know it's very 80s to be a smoker <laughs> and so that i find that charming and there's also a part of me that's like, I'm so pessimistic with New York politics and honestly with any local politics that I'm like, okay with a centrist. And not just that, but I truly am already nostalgic for de Blasio. <laughs> you know, whatever. I, I, I went in to vote and I truly was like, you know, like the first thought I had was like, maybe we should have given de Blasio a chance. Wow, the rare advocate for a third de Blasio term. Anyway, this is this is the official position of the new Gawker, by the way, is that we're actually corporate centrists. We support uh, Catherine Garcia, and we think de Blasio really got the short end of the stick. <laughs> I will say, look, if trends are correct, and it turns out Catherine Garcia does become the next mayor, or move on to the general election against adult to become the next mayor of New York, I continue to be a one-issue voter, which I still do not understand how she thinks restaurants should not have surprise inspections. That's Catherine Garcia's uh, position? Yes, she said that in the debate. She said it in the debate. I keep bringing it up. A few people have tweeted at me saying I'm wrong, but that that happens in virtually everything. Right. Uh, but I'm still concerned about the idea of not having any surprise restaurant inspections. I'm hoping she doesn't move forward on that if she indeed does become mayor, just because human beings are pe people are people and um, you stay on your toes when there might be a pop quiz. That's all. No, it's true. It's true. Ever the investigative comedic reporter. I do wonder <laughs> who's being tipped off. Who knows about what what, if, oh. what inspection is coming where, which oh, sure. restaurants and which communities are like targeted more than other restaurants and other communities. Absolutely. Great and important questions. Follow the numbers. Follow the money. That's right. Follow the phone calls. Investigate. Get to the bottom of it. Make sure it's fair. Make sure it's equitable. But surprise people. Right. That's all I'm saying. Okay. I mean, a little cop behavior a little bit, but I, I accept it for the sake of public health. I wish we didn't live in a world mm. where you damn well know that at the inspections Friday, some nasty shit may get thrown out <laughs> Thursday. All right? But that's the world we live in. It's true. It's true. <laughs> they were stripping mold off the jam at Squirrel. All right. I mean, the squirrel thing really hit me hard. I have to tell you, because that was one of my go-tos when I was in L.A. <laughs> I still think it's fine. My, look, I, I apply the squirrel rule to the Chipotle rule. Once a place has been found out for having a terrible health code violation of some sort, get in there. Totally. And I was like, I was one of those people who was like, doesn't jam just always have, like, fresh jam has mold. That's how you know it's fresh. And you just, like, take it out and then serve it. And then I kept telling that to people, like, food people. And they kept being like, no, like, this was worse. Like, that's not how much mold jam should have. <laughs> mm, I see. North Korean Supreme Leader Kim Jong-un... <laughs> <laughs> appeared in public for the first time in about a month, having lost a surprising amount of weight. Another proof point in my theory that the only people who lost weight during the pandemic are genuine fucking sociopaths. I love a revenge body. I love a bounce back after, let's say, a stint as a dictator. Mm -hmm. I love a reveal. I love a new era. I mean, he's giving us, you know, this is his art pop. <laughs> Hot Kim Summer. That's right. And I think, you know, um, I say good for him. <laughs> 
We say the new Gawker says good for Kim Jong Un. Yeah, I just to just to recap, like the new Gawker is corporate centrist in its domestic politics and pro Kim Jong Un in its foreign politics. And so, you know, if anyone has any follow up questions, you can reach me at uh, george.severus at gawker.com. <laughs> Really fascinating new politics over there at that's the, right, the revived that's right. Gawker. Oh, I mean, this is what they get for hiring a stand-up comedian to be their editor. I mean, <laughs> I'm excited for you. I'm excited for us. Oh, it's going to be great. <laughs> IKEA announced this week that 10 designers had created special love seats inspired by various pride flags to celebrate Pride Month. Prove once and for all that no matter your gender identity or sexual orientation, love seats are too small to comfortably nap on. I was just interesting. I was was like, where's that going? (laughs) You know, whatever. We've all been on the Internet for many years. It's very rare that something really makes me feel insane. And this really was it for the last month. Like this is one of those things that really broke me. It it really bothered me also that I I went and looked at the sofas, Mm -hmm. the love seats. And it was like, wait, these aren't even these don't even look like they can be for sale. Like, this one's made of flowers. They're simply not functional. And the flower one was beautiful, but obviously not for sale. It looked yeah. like the flowers were growing out of it. It looked like a pride version of a couch as if it were a monster from The Last of Us. Does that make sense? Yes, definitely. But beautiful. I mean, the flower one was a little Annihilation starring Natalie Portman. Yes. It was very much like they're yes. going into the ether or whatever it was called. Mm-hmm. And suddenly mm-hmm. the couch is coming to life. There was one that was more muzzy, like the children's television mm-hmm. show. There was a non-binary S&M one. It was like putting lipstick on a pig. Like the couch itself kept being like the simplest possible couch you could think of. <laughs> and they just kept like sticking things on it. Like they were just writing the word oppression on the cushion. I don't know. I mean, maybe one of them could be a longer couch. One of them could be I don't, maybe an L shape for the bisexual one. And, you know, mm-hmm. one side is sure. for one gender and one side is for the other. Yes. The bisexual love seat was, I would say, chilling. Yes. Uh, it did look kind of monstrous and uh, quite unsettling, not something you'd want to sit down in. It looked like if you sat, you could not get back up, that it would keep you right. in its bisexual grasp. Pat was talking about this on your show. Okay, we went through like criticizing corporate pride. Now it's almost hacked to criticize corporate pride. It's like, mm-hmm. yes, everyone agrees it's silly, but we all just have to do it for a month. And now it's just we're in the Dada era of corporate pride advertising. We're like, this is just a full on performance. Like, it's nonsensical. Corporations, by definition, really can't be courageous because they don't have anything to fear. Yeah. <laughs> they are legal entities. Yeah. They recognize it is in their interest to stand up on behalf of LGBT people. It is true that it was nice when certain in- companies recognized that sooner. And I think they deserve credit for that for saying, you know what, this is actually a market we need to be paying better attention to. There's some value in, I think, good in that. But now that everybody's doing it, it becomes almost like Super Bowl ads where they have to kind of outdo one another to find the way to show that they're the most proud that they can be. But of course, all of that is aimed at public facing marketing. (laughs) It's like we got the whole Marvel universe and like the gay character in Age of Infinity War is like a guy in a therapy session saying, I have a boyfriend. (laughs) Like there's so little actual Gayness, like I said, it's reached its Dada era. Critique is futile, basically. We just know that, like, for the entire month of June, you're just going to be like, 
punched in the face with rainbow cushions from the bisexual couch. And you just have to deal with that and have to say thank you and kind of do a little bow. I guess Dumbledore is gay. J.K. Rowling, transphobic J.K. Rowling is like, Dumbledore's gay, Dumbledore's gay. And then they come out with these prequels or whatever they are. Fantastic haunting beasts and where to hunt them, whatever it is. Yeah. yeah. And then, then now we've got Jude Law and I don't know who the other person is. Johnny Depp, maybe? Are they gay together? I am not. I haven't kept up with the Harry Potter universe. The point, the, all I know is they have this opportunity to show these gay characters, and apparently they're being incredibly oblique about it, like barely showing it, implying it, hinting at it. And to me, like, that's a great example of what, like, corporate pride really boils down to. It's like, sure. we'll be pride in what we know the gays will see. But for the stuff for everybody, we're going to be pretty subtle about it. I do love, like... That the one place people truly can successfully organize is to, like, pressure corporate entities to, like, add a line saying someone has, like, a mental illness in a TV show or something. Like, it's just, like, (laughs) if we could take the energy that people are putting into being, like, we need a poly character on the OA into (laughs) anything else, it would be an absolute... We'd live in a completely different world. (laughs) A California couple was fined $18,000 after bulldozing at least 36 protected Joshua trees on their property in the Mojave Desert. Or to put it another way, it cost $18,000 plus labor to clear 36 Joshua trees from your property in the Mojave Desert. Wow. You know, the articles are like, ah, they were like, they're not old, but they're like old enough and they seem contrite. They knew what they were fucking doing. That's right. Don't ask for permission. Beg for forgiveness. They're like, ah, we'll pay a fine. They wanted those Joshua trees gone so they can build some kind of a house. Yeah, the don't ask for permission, ask for forgiveness thing started to latch onto that it is one of the most chilling kind of like tech things like one of my first jobs out of college was working for facebook and it was like that like don't ask for permission ask for forgiveness and then move fast and break things and people were like really into those two ideas and it's like both of those are recipes for disaster like one is literally don't ask for consent and the other one is destroy (laughs) everything Anyway, not about Joshua Trees. I mean, yes. No, I, I'm glad. That's the Facebook ethos. And you know what? They did that. And they broke a bunch of stuff. They did. And they, you know what? They did move fast and break things. So mission accomplished there. And in fact, they didn't ask for um, permission or forgiveness. <laughs> There's this book about Facebook coming out. And instead of blurbs on the back, they just put Zuckerberg apologies. And I really appreciate oh, yeah. that. Just his endless list of apologies. Former Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld, one of the architects of the Iraq War, has died. He was 88 years young. So here's to a real one. Um, There's a joke to be made about how he's bringing democracy to hell or something. Sure. uh, Something along those lines. But then I thought, okay, like, who is he in hell with? And it's always fun to make a list of three people in hell. I just always enjoy doing it. I'll give you a few. Robert E. Lee, Dan White, Joan Crawford. Wow. See, it's fun. (laughs) Joan Crawford, I mean... Yeah, she's abusive. She's in hell. Fair. I still don't think she deserves to be kind of like at the cafeteria table with Donald Rumsfeld. I don't know where she sits. I don't know where the ranking is, but she's down there somewhere. No, she's down. Yeah, I I understand that. I mean, I guess there's no camp exception for hell. No. You can't be like, but I'm a camp icon. (laughs) (laughs) But I I did it with like a really, really heavy makeup on. Right, but the gays love me. Can I go to that section? In the... (laughs) When Faye Dunaway played me, she sat at the front of the table at Pepsi. <laughs> Wait, I, I do have something to say about Donald Rumsfeld, which a, a friend of mine reminded me of, which is that do you remember or know that he was one of People's Sexiest Men Alive in 2002? Um, <laughs> that is that is honestly such a fucking punch in the gut. I did yeah. not remember that. As you say it, I remember 
but that is horrible. That is horrible. It's just a good thing to keep in mind. When people are like, we live in unprecedented times, just remember Donald Rumsfeld was one of people's sexiest men alive in 2002. There was this moment where he was this darling of the media and he was like this authentic, wisecracking bureaucrat poet. Yeah. And it was part of this like myth making that happened after 9-11, which continues to this day, this idea that like we were all united as Americans, which is a lie. We weren't united as Americans. Like unity was offered, but you had to agree to be conservatives. And it just happened to be during this period of time the a lot of people in the in the mainstream media and a lot of Democrats said, sure, we're in. We'll be conservatives. And that unity has caused some of the worst destruction in the history of this country. Like, we are living in the wreckage of the unity that that created when we decided to unite as conservatives yeah. uh, during that period of time. And then paint anyone who was a dissenter as, like, essentially a loony lefty. Yeah. That became, like, a media trope, too. Like, whatever. Everyone knows the history of the Iraq War. I don't, I'm not an expert. But, like... The New York Times was on board. Everyone was on board. And it's like, if you were someone who was dissenting, you were like a crazy professor with like a ripped blazer. Like you were just like painted as this insane, I don't know, radical or something. And I do think actually, you know, for all the harm and all the ways in which social media is rightly mocked, there just wasn't enough of a kind of voice for the left to have in our politics that I think has changed a bit, though you kind of see parallels in that a lot of the people who were right about Iraq have been punished for being right because it was seen as being out of the mainstream when they were right before everybody admitted they were wrong. And you sort of see the same thing playing out now with climate change, which is, and I actually talked about this with Eric Holthouse, who who you can hear in the interview with in this show, that it's remarkable, like, what is considered the maximal position versus what is considered moderate when the moderate view requires denying reality. Presumably, when you're denying reality, that is when you are the radical. Right. Yes. And I think to your point about social media, like there was a famous like essay in Harper's that really correctly like analyzed the hypocritical messaging of the Iraq war. There were like things in other kind of leftist, not to say the Harper's a leftist publication, but in other left leaning publications. And like if there were ways to disseminate that more broadly, like we have now with social media, maybe it would have changed public opinion more before it was too late. But I don't know. It was a more gatekeepy, I guess, environment. Robert Oppenheimer, Fatty Arbuckle, Thomas Jefferson. <laughs> Wait, I, now I'm like, you know, when you are faced with such a simple task, like naming three dead people, and suddenly you can't think of anyone who has ever died? They're just three people in hell. That's all you have to do. Yeah. The reason I, I like putting Thomas Jefferson there, because he's always on the list of the best presidents. There was this new list that came out of the best presidents, and there he is. He's up there in the top 10. He's number seven this year. Sure. But like, Thomas Jefferson is 100% in hell, but it is like a controversial thing to say that Thomas Jefferson is rotting in hell. <laughs> but then it's like, well, I, I know he wrote the Declaration of Independence, but he also enslaved children in a facility that made nails all day. Sure. And presumably those kids are in heaven. And if those kids are in heaven, Thomas Jefferson can't be in heaven because you're not going to be in heaven with your captor. Wow. wow. I, so it seems like the logic is ironclad. Yeah, yeah. He has to be in hell. If heaven exists, Thomas Jefferson can't be in it. What am I missing, George? Well, you're being very sorry. <laughs> Seeing the window of you making this argument is very like podcaster owns liberal. Like you making this logical argument about uh -huh. how like, well, if there's good and evil and the good people are in heaven, the evil person must be in hell. <laughs>
That's what I think. But I agree. I mean, listen, I don't think, <laughs> sorry to be provocative, but I don't think anyone who owns slaves hopefully is in heaven. So I think it's a, it's a much broader issue. George, question for you. Yes. Do you think heaven is a place where you can keep your secrets or is it a place for people who have no secrets? Wait a minute. George Severus, thank you so much for being here. <laughs> <laughs> And thank you for having me. It's, it's, it, was a real, it was a real honor. George, thank you so much. That was so great. Uh, when we come back, uh, we play a game with a listener based on a new presidential survey that just came out ranking uh, U.S. presidents. Hey, don't go anywhere. There's more of Love It or Leave It coming up. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Is there something I need to get off my chest? What is your outlet for working through the things that stress you out? Oh, man. You know, I don't know. Pushing it down. <laughs> Pushing it all the way down, getting it real down deep in there. Squish it. Squishing it. Squishing it real tight. Fighting through it. Gotta fight through it. Skinny jeans are for dads. Fight it. You fight it. You push it down. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Not me. Not me. I'm running on rails. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. Uh, I said to my therapist just yesterday, I just feel like I don't have the 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 attention span right now to focus on some of these longer term issues. And she's mm. like, you found a way to say that every session for the past five years. <laughs> if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest. With better help, everybody needs therapy. You need therapy. I need therapy. Tommy needs therapy. Mm. We all need therapy. Mm-hmm. Visit betterhelp.com slash love it today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H E L P.com slash love it. And we're back. The 4th of July, America's dog's least favorite day of the year, a special time a few days after Pride ends when straights realize that they can deep throat hot dogs too. I'm sorry. We know what it means. And that's freedom. In honor of the 4th of July, we thought it would be a good time to honor the good men who've sat behind the resolute desk to make our young country the best in the world. Every new presidential administration. The good folks at C-SPAN conduct a survey evaluating our presidents in 10 qualities of leadership. Public persuasion, crisis leadership, economic management, moral authority, international relations, administrative skills, relations with Congress, vision, setting an agenda, pursued equal justice for all, and performance within the context of the times. I'm going to call that a catch-all for uh, they own slaves. We took the data and turned it into a game we're calling, is that an oval in your office or are you just happy to elect me? <laughs> I almost said it right and we're leaving it in. Here's how it works. I'll ask you a question. Lauren, you'll answer it. Here to play, as I said, is Lauren. R- Lauren, are you ready? Oh, I was born ready. Let's go. Are you familiar with the American presidents? Um, You know, one or two. I've been here for a while, so. You've been here for a while? All right. (laughs) In the category of moral authority, Donald Trump is obviously rated last. Mm -hmm. Who is second to last? Oh, second to last. Nixon? No, it's James Buchanan. Oh, yeah. Bonus. Mm -hmm. Can you guess why? Is it that he's single? No. Because he was single. It's because he was gay, Lauren. (laughs) Uh, Well, he's been rumored to be, that's not why. That's not why he didn't have moral authority. He moral authority because he was a corrupt doof. But. We don't look, the gays look, pride is over. We don't like to claim James Buchanan, but he was rumored to have a long-standing relationship with William King, who was a vice president in a previous administration. And one fact about James Buchanan I always like is that Andrew Jackson called uh, William King and James Buchanan and Fancy and Miss Nancy, and that makes me laugh. 
<laughs> Next question. In the category of crisis leadership, who has ranked first in every survey since the year 2000? Lincoln. That's correct. The crisis was probably the Civil War. Uh, in which of the following categories is Nixon ranked highest? Moral authority, vision, administrative skills, and crisis leadership. Where among those categories is he ranked the highest? Ooh, vision? Nope, it was administrative skills. What skills are they talking about? Destroying the tapes. <laughs> Next question. Rank the following from worst to best in the category of performance in context of the times. Okay. FDR, Obama, Andrew Jackson, Reagan, Clinton. Okay, so Andrew Jackson is definitely worst. Oh no. They gave that they gave that to Clinton. Oh wow. It goes Clinton Jackson. Now we have now rank Obama, Reagan, FDR. Uh, FDR is best. Mm -hmm. So then oof, I'm gonna go Reagan, then Obama, then FDR. They have FDR first, then Reagan, then Obama, then Jackson, then Clinton. Next question. Okay. Which president is ranked as having the best relationship with Congress and why do I think that's the case? <laughs> oh no. Since you worked for Obama, is it Obama? No. Nope. The correct answer is George Washington. Oh, God. Because there were no parties and there were only 13 states. It was super easy. That's fair. That's fair. And it was just like just eight creeps. <laughs> no, no, I can't call them creeps, I don't think. And just letters going back and forth. Yeah, just letters. One horseback. They met like once a year in Philadelphia. Lauren, you've won the game. <laughs> Yay. So proud of you. Thank you. Happy 4th of July, Lauren. Thank you so much. When we come back, my conversation with uh, meteorologist and uh, climate expert Eric Holdhouse. Don't go anywhere. This is Love It or Leave It, and there's more on the way. Sofas, recliners, love seats, everything is better in leather. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley, where bold meets durable. And wait a minute, who's been finger painting on the couch again? That's okay, leather is easy to clean. The new leather collection at Ashley is built with the durability you need for the whole family. Yes, pets too. Luxury is meant to be livable. Shop chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. And we're back. He is a climate journalist, meteorologist, and founder of Currently. Please welcome Eric Holthouse. Eric, good to talk to you again. Hey, yeah, thanks for having me. I wanted to talk to you. I had seen that you had launched this new weather service that was trying to make the connection between the daily experience of weather and the reality of climate change. And then when I saw these stories of what was happening in Portland and Seattle and then uh, in the Pacific Northwest and Canada playing out and seeing how much of the coverage did not connect the weather to the climate, I really wanted to talk to you about it. And so I, I wanted to start by just asking, what have you been thinking as you've been watching unprecedented heat obliterate parts of the world that had never experienced temperatures like this before? It's the same kind of thing that happened during the fires last year in California. It's just like I hear this current of conversation of like, what's happening? Why is it getting worse? Why have we not heard anything about this? What's going to happen next? Like, is my kid safe? Like, should I go outside? how can I not die, right? Like during this thing that has never happened before, you know, especially in this part of the world. You know, there's this one small mountain town in Canada now that reached 121 degrees yesterday. <laughs> I mean, it's like that's never been recorded pretty much anywhere in North America outside of Death Valley in the deserts in Arizona. And it's just like, 
something flips in your brain to where it's like this shouldn't exist. And I feel kind of panic alongside the comments that I'm seeing from folks who are experiencing it firsthand. Like they're also panicking. And I just kind of want to talk about that, right? Like we want to have that conversation of what is happening? Why is it happening? What's the context for it's happening? What's the structural change in society that needs to happen to make it stop happening, right? And how can we do that? One of the challenges has been in the past, there's obviously a difference between climate and weather, that there's a difference between the random, you know, the vicissitudes of heat waves and and cold spells and climate change. And yet this time, as with the fires, I think last year, does feel different. How do you think about that now when like there is still this caution amongst those who believe in intellectual honesty and rigor to say, mm. while we can't attribute it entirely to climate change, we believe climate change is a factor. How, how do you think about that distinction between climate and weather? Really, all weather is climate uh, at this point. It's just at a different time scale. Even this sort of nice stretch of sunny weather that we've been having here in the Twin Cities since the beginning of April, like the plants that I planted on time, in theory, have all died, right? Like, it's just this slow creeping thing until it becomes uh, in-your-face emergency panic, you know, like we've had in this places. So it's just sometimes it's more pronounced than others is kind of how I think about it. It's like all of these weather events from a nice day to a cloudy day to a hurricane, they're all happening in the context of an entire atmosphere that has fundamentally changed This is an entirely new climate, um, especially for folks in the Pacific Northwest. Like, this just hasn't happened before on any stretch of timescale that we can talk about. You know, in the mountains in California, there are giant redwood trees, sequoias that are dying that have been there for thousands of years. This tree has survived everything in the last few millennia, and now there's a drought that's killing it. Like, this is weather that has been pushed beyond the breaking point for years and years and years, and the accumulated effect of that is now changing fundamentally um, the places where we live and work. And that is something that shouldn't really happen on a human timescale, so it kind of takes a little bit for our brains to realize that this gradual weirdness has now flipped into a different state. You know, you were talking about what you're trying to do with currently and how you talk about the connections between weather patterns and these larger forces in our climate and in our politics. And I was glad to hear you talk about just helping people who take climate change very seriously and want to make a difference in addressing climate change, Mm. helping them understand what they're seeing, put their fear and their worries in context uh, and give them the language to understand it. How do you get beyond that group of people with weather that speaks to the reality of climate change in a way to get at what you also said, which is helping people figure out how to make structural changes. I genuinely think that we don't have to get beyond those people. There is a study from a sociologist, Erica Shenoweth at Harvard, that said that in all nonviolent revolutions of the last century, it just takes a critical mass of three and a half percent of the population to be out in the street active. You know, we've seen that with uh, Black Lives Matter. We've seen that with the youth climate strikes. New Zealand was the first country that kind of right before the pandemic switched over into that critical mass 
And within a few months, they passed a major climate bill that forced the government to consider climate change in all aspects of public life. With these conversations, with currently, with um, how I speak about climate change in public, you need to sort of say, you are the person that is going to make this happen. You know, like, yes, it's a structural problem, but we are part of that structure in some ways. And we have a responsibility to get our friends and neighbors essentially out in the street and refusing to cooperate with the system as it is right now, because it's not working for the majority of us. We have this extractive economy that is built on fossil fuels, really, and that's reflected in how we are treated as citizens. And I think that having a more ecological society that's built on relationships, that's built on reciprocity, that's built on this sort of like family type relationship where we take care of each other, it's maybe like super idealistic and aspirational. But if you look at it from the top down from like climate physics, that's what needs to happen. We need to have a non-extractive economic system in order for our planet to exist beyond the next few decades, right? Like we can mimic that in our politics and I think it will go a long ways to getting where we need to go. Tell me if this is wrong. Over the last, say, less than a decade, your view on how bad the climate crisis is has gotten more pessimistic. But your belief in a critical mass of people to change it has gotten more optimistic. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think it's kind of weird, you know, as I'm watching (laughs) myself think about it. I was like, you know, you see the science studies saying like, oh, yeah, we're screwed. We've already passed the point of trying to prevent any of this. Now it's kind of dealing with it. Uh, But I feel like that's radicalizing a lot of people at the same time of saying like, well, we've given up a chance to kind of have this slow, gradual, comfortable switch to a society that preserves all of the inequalities that I don't have to do anything particularly other than just like buy a different type of car. I think we're kind of far beyond that. And that kind of gives me a little bit of intellectual comfort to know that in some ways to say like, okay, well then let's just do it the way that it needs to be done, right? Like I don't have to say that this is going to be easy because it's not. At this point, nothing is going to be easy really about the rest of our lives when it comes to climate. The heat waves are going to keep getting worse. The storms are going to keep getting worse. We've locked in a few decades of increasing temperatures at this point. Even if we were to go to zero carbon in three years from now, we still have some residual heat from the atmosphere that's trapped in the oceans that will be kind of like circulating through the system for decades or centuries. So that is locked in. But we are at this point trying to prevent the sort of like total collapse, if that makes sense. Like Mm -hmm. we're trying to prevent places where it's already very bad. Like uh, occasionally, you know, there are places in Pakistan and parts of the Middle East now where the humidity and heat combined are such that you can't really walk outside certain days without a risk of dying, even healthy people. Like it's gotten to the point where you're just the amount of sweat that you can produce in your body isn't enough to cool you down. And that's a major red flag to me. Like, Yeah, no, I'd, I'd call that a red flag for sure. Right. Yeah. So, and, and, you know, <laughs> the projections are like the entire Southeast of the U.S. may get there by the end of the century, you know, like 
some of Southern Europe will become a desert. You know, like we may lose all the forests in California because they'll just be fires that keep going that we can't put out. Like that's the kind of stuff that we can still prevent. It's manageable right now the way it is. And I think that we're starting to get the glimpse of how bad it really, really could be. And that is enough to, like I said, radicalize people. We've seen the dialogue change in the last three to four years, I think, um, since the Green New Deal became like a common parlance. Like that's the kind of scale, finally, of the solutions that are necessary. And we're actually talking about it, which is very optimistic to me. So, you know, the, um, there's this part in The Godfather where Michael sends uh, Robert Duvall to Vegas because he's not a wartime conciliary. Do you feel like we have enough wartime meteorologists? Like, <laughs> uh, do we need to radicalize the people reporting on the weather every single day in cities across the country where tens of millions of people get their news? If you self-identify as that person, please send me an email because that's <laughs> the kind of people that I want to be writing for currently. Like, this is just a weird time to be alive and having relationships in this moment in history. And I think that bringing some kind of like creative energy to that is kind of how like science is not going to work anymore at this point. Like we've tried that for 50 years. And I think we have to kind of like hit people where they can relate. I mean, that's what film and music and art is about is like making people relate at a spiritual level to what's happening. And that's kind of, if we need like a meteorologist, you know, strike force or something like that (laughs) to go out there. There is something fundamentally new about a whole generation growing up with this specter of destruction. On the one side, you have progressives who feel guilty, Mm. maybe all the time, about climate change, not sure what to do. And then the other side, you have this sort of revanchist movement that is rejecting climate change in order to reject those feelings. And you're right. Science is not the answer. That's a form of climate denial, right? Right. Once you embrace that fear and that anxiety and that trauma that we're experiencing, then you can kind of like grab onto it and figure out what you need to do. Because like, I don't think everyone has to become a climate activist. I don't think everyone has to like eat granola and live in a hut. Mm-hmm. That's not what a healthy society looks like. It's where we can trust each other again. Also seeing how a lot of this breaks down by race, like red line neighborhoods can be up to 10 to 15 degrees hotter in heat waves. And, you know, if you're dealing with systemic racism, you can't, you don't have a whole lot of extra brain power to think about how can I put in a bike lane on my street, right? Right. It's like it distracts away from living your life in a way that you can thrive. And I think that getting to that point where we can imagine that society, you know, like, like you said, like we were born in this weird moment in history, but we're also born at the exactly right time to change it. So millennials and definitely Gen Z are kind of in that inherent knowledge of like, this is my stuff to deal with now. This is my uh, world. I didn't do very much to create it, but it is up to me. If we're down to like six years left before we tip over tipping point, by the time my kid reaches like junior high, right? He just finished kindergarten. Like that's a tangible amount of time. And I know that it's not his job to change it because he's going to be learning how to do math still, right? Like uh, he's going (laughs) to be learning how to write a sentence uh, still when this is already kind of over. We are at a very critical moment right now in the next five to eight years, which is why some of the politics discussions are so disappointing because I feel like we have this 
picture of what needs to happen and then everyone's acknowledging it and just kind of saying, oh yeah, we'll do it someday. Like it has to be now. Like I just don't understand why that urgency is not there Mm -hmm. at the higher levels. You'd think after the year we've been through (laughs) that the bias towards things actually don't change very much Mm. would fall away. And the expectation that sensible lies between whatever the two poles established by the parties are Mm. would also fall when (laughs) it's actually... We know the problem. There is actually a big consensus on the problem. Mm-hmm. We know what needs to be done to address it. Mm-hmm. Those solutions are called radical when actually, of course, isn't the most radical thing a person can do. Deny reality mm-hmm. in order to pursue solutions that will not work. <laughs> right? That that to me is the definition right. of, of radical. Of radical, of extreme. You're so extreme that you won't acknowledge what needs to be done to solve the problem when mm-hmm. the Green New Deal, when some of the big steps we need to take in the next five to six years are considered radical when they are the consensus view. They're the consensus policy options to solve the problem at the scale that we have. So my hope right now is when we do this infrastructure deal and we get to the partisan one, Mm. (laughs) that that becomes a place where we are debating just how much we need to invest in climate Mm -hmm. uh, in order to kind of build our society uh, for the future. But yeah, you're right. It can all, it's, it's frustrating. There is no such thing as too much right now. Right. If we end up getting a huge amount of youth involved, full employment, healthcare, all the stuff like that will be just something that we get as a as a bonus apparently, right? <laughs> like apparently like a livable planet is just like a thing that we can get thrown in as a treat at the end, right? <laughs> and what a, and what a treat it will be. Eric Holthouse, thank you so much. Uh check out currently They're launching newsletters and uh, content uh, in cities across the country. Uh, Eric, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. When we come back, we'll end on a high note. And we're back because we all need it this week. Here it is, the high note. Hey, love it. This is Sadie from Texas. I just want to call and let you know my high note of the week is this past weekend, uh, particularly Sunday, Beto O'Rourke had a For the People rally in Austin. Anybody who's kept up with Texas politics this past session knows the despair that I have felt over the past six months and how hard it can be to just feel so helpless about all the shit that's going on in that building. But it was so nice to see so many young people out there just rallying for voting rights, for the people around them, for the elderly, for minorities, for other students, for the disabled. And I feel a lot of hope knowing that we're the future and that it's only going to get better from here. Thanks for everything you do. Listen to you next week. Hello, love it and team. My name is Kathleen. I've been waiting a really long time to share this high note after crying every week listening to others. I'm from the US, but I've lived in Canada since around 2013. When the pandemic hit in March 2020 and the US-Canada border closed, I was really scared and unsure of when I would be able to see my family in the US again. However, with my first Pfizer shot pumping through my veins, I returned home this month after over a year away from my favorite people. I'm currently staying with my vaccinated parents, who are two of my best friends. We're eating good food, drinking lovely wine, and debating over what show to watch on any one of their numerous streaming platforms, just like the good old days. We went camping on an island in Vermont with my big sister, her hubby, and my two magnificent nieces who have matured and remained resilient throughout this shit show of a year. And I got my second shot, so I'll be considered fully vaccinated in a week or so. 
I feel like my cup has been refilled and the summer is looking really bright. Thank you for creating this space for us to share our big and little wins during this really fucking difficult time. Take care. Hey, love it. This is Ashley in Indiana. My high note is that I am moving in with my boyfriend this week. It's the first time I've ever lived with a partner, and I'm very excited about it, but it's a very big step in my life. My boyfriend listens to this podcast, so hopefully he hears this message and knows how excited I am for us to start the rest of our lives together. Thank you. Have a good week. Bye. Hey there, love it. Uh, This is Eric. I'm calling from Houston, Texas. My high note for the week is that I get to go to Valdez, Alaska for a theater conference uh, where my play is being presented alongside many others. I am just so excited to go to an actual in-person theatrical event for the first time in, gosh, I don't know how long it's been. Um, and not only that, but it's in Valdez, Alaska, which is just one of the most beautiful places on earth. And we just get to spend a week listening to new plays, talking about new plays, and workshopping new plays. And I am just so excited. And that's my high note. I just wanted to share it with you. Have a good week. Thank you to everybody who called in. If you want to leave us a message about something that gave you hope, call us at 213-262-4427. Thank you to George Severus, Eric Holthouse, and everybody who called in. There are 493 days until the 2022 midterm elections. Have a great weekend. Love It or Leave It is a Crooked Media production. It is written and produced by me, John Lovett, and Lee Eisenberg. Jocelyn Kaufman, Pulavi Ganalan, and Peter Miller are our writers. Our associate producer is Brian Semmel. Bill Lance is our editor, and Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Our theme song is written and performed by Sure Sure. Thanks to our designers, Jesse McLean and Jamie Skeel, for creating and running all of our visuals, which you can't see because this is a podcast. And to our digital producers, Narmel Konian, Milo Kim, Mia Kelman, and Matt DeGroote for filming and editing video each week so you can. Ashley's Memorial Day mattress sale is going on now. Save big on select adjustable mattress sets up to $1,200 on Beautyrest Black, up to $800 on Purple, and up to $500 on Tempur-Pedic. Plus, get 72-month special financing with select in-store mattress purchases made with your Ashley Advantage Synchrony credit card between May 14th and June 3rd. Visit your local Ashley store or ashley.com for better sleep and savings. Only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. Minimum monthly payments required. No minimum purchase required. See store for details.